welcome everyone. Welcome to our latest episode of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I'm Troy and this is my co-host Brian. G'day Brian, how are you? I am fantastic um, and more so because of uh, the guest that we've got on today, Troy, because both of us have a heck of a lot of respect for our guest. Do you want to tell us a little bit more? Yeah, well, I, I'm really excited because we've got Philip Yancey, who is a, you know, arguably one of the best evangelical, best-selling evangelical authors of all time, if not the best, I'm not sure, maybe he'll set us straight on that, but certainly someone that has impacted me strongly in my Christian walk over the years, especially around the 90s. I'm even going to say, Philip, before I say g'day to you, I will actually say that I have a tattoo on my arm of the word grace in Chinese, which I actually got because of your book and also Chuck Swindoll's book around the same time. I read those books and actually went, wow, this concept of grace is so amazing that I went and got the the tattoo of the word grace on my arm. So I told you I was going to gush. Is that something we can see, Troy? Oh, there it is. Okay, very good. <laughs> yeah, so so there you go. So I haven't quite got Philip Yancey tattooed on my arm, but nevertheless, That's that was good. the sort of impact <laughs> that, that you had. So welcome to I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, and more than that, you were a teenage fundamentalist. I was a teenage fundamentalist and experienced some of the worst of the church, frankly. I grew up in a very narrow church. Uh, there were about 120 of us there. We thought there may be as many as 150 in heaven, but surely not more. Uh, we had the truth. Nobody else did, but it was also angry. It was legalistic. It was racist. I was in Atlanta, Georgia, in the South, right before the civil rights movement broke out. And uh, I've been in recovery ever since. And frankly, Troy, most of my books are written about that recovery process, just trying to sort through what is worth keeping and what should I discard. And I've been very fortunate to be able to make a living just writing about the reconstruction of my faith. I, I didn't use that word back then, but people are now deconstructing and reconstructing faith. But I, that's been my career. I'm a freelance writer. I'm not, I don't have any supporters. I don't have any boards. I just sit in my basement and write books about things I'm curious about. We, I think we've both said this, that your books really helped us, particularly at that time where we were trying to process the damaging effects of, yeah. for us, Pentecostal fundamentalism, which, which was an angry, exclusive mm. type of faith. And it was something that was, I think, quite sheltered from the world and something that, that didn't reflect reality. So we really, I, I guess we both want to say we really appreciate your writing and the candidness of your writing because, as many of our listeners would identify, it really helps people to know that there's people asking the hard questions. Good. It, times have changed. I we I did not have a Pentecostal background. In fact, those were the some of the bad guys. We were suspicious about them. And, and Catholics couldn't possibly be Christians. And you got to worry about people like Episcopalians or Anglicans and and Methodists. You know these mainliners. It was one of these independent fundamental Baptist churches, and we had the truth, and no one else did. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's it's certainly something that's reflected in your your new book, and we definitely want to tap into that in a minute. But I guess we were just having a bit of a chat before we started, Philip, and just letting you know who we were, who the audience was, and how we started. But I guess, you know, for us, when we invited you to come on the podcast, we were quite clear we're exvangelical, we're, you know, constantly unpacking. What made you want to come on an exvangelical podcast? I hope ex-evangelicals would read this book. Many times I'm in a conversation, say sitting next to somebody on an airplane or in the lobby, a waiting room for a doctor's appointment or something, and we'll start chatting and someone will say, what do you do? Well, I'm, I'm a writer. What do you write? And I'll give them some of my book titles and say, oh, Christian author, huh? I say, yeah, that's right. Oh, I used to be a Christian. Well, what happened? You're not now? No. And they'll tell me, my, they'll tell me their story and it often involves the church's stance toward gay people or divorced people or science or, or just the angry, the judgment that they got, the hypocrisy they saw in the church. And I kind of lean back and say, oh, it's a lot worse than that. Let me tell you my story. And they say, wait a minute, I thought you said you're a Christian author. And I say, well, I am. Um, and I finally had to discard a lot of what I was taught in the way it was taught. But 
I think it wouldn't be a good trade if you really believe there is a God and you have a connection, it's possible to have a direct connection with that God, to let something somebody in church offended you by 30 years ago to affect you from having that relationship. And I, I do believe there is a God, and I do believe that God is a God of love, very different than the scowling super cop image that I had growing up. Uh, a God who was just looking for somebody who might be having a good time so he could squash them, he could break them. That's the image I, I grew up with. And it took me quite some time to overcome that. And it happened in a dramatic way for me. Um, I wasn't really seeking a relationship with God. I was pretty hostile toward the Christians around me and uh, suspicious, but I had a, a mystical epiphanous experience and it, it changed me forever. And I went from being pretty agnostic to uh, trying to climb my way back into the part of faith that I could believe in and, and uh, feel honest and vulnerable about. I think one of the things that struck me about your book when I read this, Where the Light Fell, it contextualized all these other nonfiction books that you that you put out before, these other sort of discussions, mm. these sort of even persuasive texts on why you've sort of held on. And I thought that was really interesting to see. But you really do talk about this abusive upbringing, right? There's, there's racism, fear, judgment, and even this toxicity that you talked about in, in your relationship with your family. I mean, it was really, really raw. But can you tell me about how the memoir came about and why you even did this and why you did this, I guess, relative to your other books, why you did it so late? Why so late? I'll start there because I do tell raw family stories. I waited a long time knowing that some of the things I said would really deeply hurt people. And finally, you know, I figure I'm 72 years old. Who knows how much longer I have? I need to get this stuff down. I've been taking notes and planning to write a memoir for many years. And I, I guess I came to see even the bad parts, uh, the difficult parts growing up as a kind of gift. Uh, because I did grow up in the midst of a tumultuous time. People in the United States now often say, our country has never been so divided. And I smile and say, you should have been here in the 1960s when there were tens of thousands of people marching against the Vietnam War and they were burning down buildings on university campuses and Richard Nixon was the president. And, you know, things were pretty divided then. The civil rights movement was going on right where I was in, in Georgia, very divi divisive time. So I, I had the, the gift, as I now see it, didn't see it at the time, of growing up in the midst of that, uh, getting these strong messages, and then spending the rest of my life going through and, and sorting out what's worth keeping and, and what what was an accretion that we put onto the church. I, sometimes I felt like I had discovered, say, an old icon, but it was covered with mud and dust, and I, I had to go through and carefully restore it and knock away a lot of stuff that that had gathered to stain that icon over the years to look for a legitimate faith. And I like to say I've seen some of the worst of the church and I've seen some of the best of the church because I've spent my life as a journalist. I've gotten to know the good side of the Christian faith, people who spend their lives trying to free sexual trafficking victims and uh, visit prisons, prison ministries, and all sorts of good works. You know, when I started out, I thought, ah, this is the era of uh, Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward. I'd love to be an investigative reporter. There are all those shysters out there, these Christian guys, I'm going, to, I'm going to expose them. So I would do an article on the PTL club and things like that. And that got old fast because when you're an investigative reporter, you spend most of your time around jerks <laughs> and they're just not very fun to be around. And instead I changed and started looking for people I, I wanted to emulate. I wanted to learn from, I wanted to be like. There was a about a 10-year period where my faith was just taking shape. I was unwilling to commit. I was still wounded. And I ran into uh, a saintly man. His name was Dr. Paul Brand. He's an orthopedic surgeon, brilliant man. He was offered the head of orthopedics at, at uh, Stanford University and at Oxford. 
in England. He's British. But he spent most of his life in India working among the lowest people on the entire planet. And those would be people then called untouchables, now they're called Dalits, who had leprosy. They were kicked out of their families, kicked out of their homes. And here was this man who was enlarged in every way by his faith. He was a humble, grateful man. He never complained. He was joyful. Uh, he turned down <laughs> these incredible opportunities to work among those people. And I, I spent almost 10 years writing three different books with him. That was a real cocoon period for my own faith, because uh, as I said at his funeral, we had, a, we had a different exchange. I gave words to his faith. He had never written a book. But he gave faith to my he gave faith to my words. He convinced me that there really is something there that people who truly do follow the Jesus way are remarkable human beings. And there are a lot of people who who could say, "Well, he's not like Jesus." And you're right. But if you find one true character, a true saint like that, it makes you think there's something there that's worth pursuing. There's something I need. You were saying that um, you had to chip away, you had to get away that mud that was caked up on what have sounds like it was a bit of a you know a toxic faith. Talk talk us through toxic faith. How do you define this? It's built on guilt and shame. I would say we had this little church, as I mentioned, about 120 people, and we'd hear the same sermon every week about how terrible we were, how sinful we were, how we're dangling over the fires of hell. And if we do one more thing wrong, then, then that angry God is, is going to drop us into those fires. And God takes great delight in punishing people. And you hear that again and again. I, I look back and I think, why did those people go to church to get blasted like that every week? And I later decided, even in that church, there was a sense of community. So if your house burned down, if your husband left you or beat you as an alcoholic, um, where would you turn? And and we had each other and we were separate from the world. That was important. You, you guys probably understand that. You know, come, up, come out from among them and be ye separate. So in those days, that was mostly a matter of not doing a lot of things that the world did, not going to movies, not roller skating. It looked too much like dancing, not bowling because they might sell alcohol in the bowling alley. You know, we were different. We didn't go to movies. And I, I tell one story in the book about when we had an afternoon off in my high school literature class to go see Othello, this new play with Laurence Olivier. And of course, I couldn't go because that was a movie. Christians don't go to movies. And so I had to stay home and write a paper about Chaucer while everybody else got to skip their classes and go see a movie. And you grow up with, with that sense of I'm different. And there was, there was a bit of a pride to that. You know, I'm different. I'm, I'm better. I'm pure. And you get that a lot. People say Christians are holier than thou. And I understand that because we did think we were different in a, in a good way. And then later I realized that uh, I had missed out on so much of life that uh, we're not here just to grit our teeth and survive until the other side, you know, till we get to heaven. We are here being graced by God's good gifts. The, the title of my book is Where the Light Fell. And that comes from a quote by St. Augustine who said, uh, I couldn't look at the light at the sun directly, but I could look on where the rays of sun fell. And I couldn't look at the light directly either. I had been scorched by it. I had been scorched by the fierce messages that I grew up under. And it was really through three things, through the beauties of nature. My solace in a, in a dysfunctional family was to go out in the woods and explore and dig for insects and catch butterflies and things like that. And I was always attracted to nature, loved animals. And classical music was another place. I, one of my great all-time great experiences was in your country when I went to the Sydney Opera House and, and heard a piano performance by Lazar Berman, the great Russian pianist. And in, in that setting with that un unbelievably wonderful music, Liszt's Transcendental Etudes, as I recall, that, those were peak experiences for me. And then romantic love. And when I experienced those things, I realized that the church had, had lied to me, that... that 
life is not something you, you just grit your teeth and try to get through. And God is not this scowling creature up there trying to keep you from having a good time. Uh, Augustine uses the Latin phrase, dona bona, good gifts, God's good gifts. And I came across, around that time, I came across a statement from uh, G.K. Chesterton who said, the worst moment for an atheist is when he feels a profound sense of gratitude and has no one to thank. And that's how I felt. I was feeling deeply grateful. I was feeling uh, renewed and nourished by these good things that didn't just appear, the good planet we lived on, love, and, and became convinced the church had truly misrepresented God to me. And I wanted to know the creator responsible for my body, for the planet, for so many good things that I was experiencing. And that was kind of the preliminary that, that made me open at least and softened me because I had become pretty hardened as a result of finding a way to survive that toxic church. When I read your book, I was expecting it to be more about church. I was expecting it to be more about the the things that you actually experienced in the congregation. I was quite surprised that it wasn't. It was actually more about the dynamic of yourself, your mother, and your brother. I mean, you, you grew up under profound poverty and also the religious indoctrination. But one thing that I thought was really interesting was the story you tell about where it all began, at least the poverty with the passing of your father. And I think that might be interesting for people to hear. If you could tell us about that story. Yeah. And as I say in the book, it's a secret I didn't know for 17, 18 years. I was one year old when my father got sick. There was a pandemic going on back then, not coronavirus, but um, polio. And in many ways, it, it caused even more fear and hysteria because it mostly affected children. And there are still a lot of people around the world who are on crutches or feeling post-polio syndrome of some sort. Uh, it was a deadly disease, killed tens of thousands in, in my country every year. And my father was one of the unlucky ones. He wasn't a child. He was 23 when he contracted polio. Franklin Roosevelt, our president, was another one. He was in his 30s. And he was planning to be a missionary in Africa. So a very devout man. He had been converted rather dramatically while in the Navy and woke up one day and couldn't move. So they took him to a hospital and they said, well, there's only one hospital in Atlanta that can treat you. And that's a charity hospital. So he was shipped over to the charity hospital where he was in an open ward full of these iron lung machines, these big metal cylinders. And he lay in there. He, he was so paralyzed, not even his lungs could move. He couldn't get his diaphragm working. So the the machine would pump air in and out, in and out, make a vacuum and force his lungs. And it would keep him alive, but not much of a life. He would just lie there, couldn't move even his head, couldn't read a book. There were no TVs in, in that ward. So he just lay there and stared at the ceiling for more than two months. Well, all these people were uh, praying for him. He was planning to be a missionary. So they became convinced that God wouldn't possibly take a person with such potential, such religious potential. So they became convinced he would be healed and they prayed for God to heal him. They believed in healing. And I knew, of course, that he died. What I, I didn't know the backstory. And I found that out when I came across a clipping when I was 18 years old from the Atlanta Constitution, the big paper in Atlanta. And in that clipping, they described this man with such great faith, that he had himself removed from an iron lung against all medical advice and truly believed he would be healed. And it was a very upbeat article and he was removed to a, a little chiropractic clinic. The doctor felt he could teach him to walk again. And then I looked at the date of the newspaper and, and it was nine days before he died. I knew the day that he died. And, and for 17 years, that secret had been kept from me. In a sense, my, my life was started and, and affected deeply by a theological error. People took on the prerogative they didn't have, prerogative of, of God to decide when someone's going to die and when someone's going to live. And I learned, I learned several things. I learned that not everybody who claims to speak for God does speak for God. I mean, these people weren't against him. They, they were supporters. They loved him. They wanted to see him succeed. But they made a decision that they didn't have the right to make. 
And, and I learned to be suspicious. <laughs> that was in a period when I was already questioning the faith I was brought up with. And it just underscored uh, some of the suspicions that I had about the church and um, just the, the rights that we have over other people and the rights that we don't have over other people. That affected my mother very deeply in her theology. She couldn't be upset with God. I wrote a book called Disappointment with God. Of course, she would say, you can't be disappointed with God. Well, she should read the Bible. There's a lot of disappointment with God in the Bible and Psalms and many of the prophets. But um, she didn't have a place for that in her theology. And, and I, I can only imagine the guilt and the sense of betrayal that she felt. You know, she participated in her husband dying. She was part of that decision. So she took that out by saying, the only way I can overcome this is by giving my two children, my older brother and me, to God to replace him as a missionary in Africa. And that was a kind of a sacred vow that she made, but it ultimately turned into a kind of curse because neither one of us became missionaries in Africa, although some of my books are there. <laughs> but um, as we weren't following the script the important script that she had laid out for us, she kind of went off the rails. And uh, what, what was a vow became a curse. When, she's, when my brother started doing things she disapproved of, it became a curse. And they haven't seen each other in, in 52 years now. So one of those deep family rifts. And my brother and I went very different directions. Here we were raised, of course, in the same family, in the same church. Being the older brother, he, he took things on. He would fight, he would argue. And when you're a kid, you usually lose. And then I would watch this and had to come up with a different uh, approach. And, and so I kind of, what I call turtled down, created a hard shell against me, trying to keep people from getting to me. And that helped me survive. It wasn't a healthy way, but I did survive at least. And ultimately, he dropped out of a, of a college his very last semester, never finished, uh, moved to Atlanta, became a, one of Atlanta's original hippies, took a lot of LSD and forfeited a brilliant music career. He ended up being a piano tuner, just playing the same note over and over again and tried to break every rule in the book. And he did. He became addicted to alcohol and drugs and sexual perversions and all sorts of things, trying to Trying to, un, trying to react against everything he was taught. And I uh, took a different tack and uh, through God's grace, understood that the world was different than we were taught. And as I said, I've, I've spent my career really going through and figuring out what's worth keeping and what shouldn't I. I think, Philip, you know, I mean, some of those stories that you told, they were quite harrowing and, and you could feel the pain coming out of the pages as you read. And firstly, just want to say thank you for putting that down on paper. Thank you for your honesty, for your rawness. And it's that sort of thing that is just so often missing, um, that honesty in writing, something that people can really connect with and, and help them process their own stuff what, what was implicit but also explicit was definitely those themes of addiction that you spoke about with your brother Marshall, um, but also, you know, themes of, of mental health issues through, you know, whether it was with Marshall, with your mum, all of that stuff that was happening and the way that was expressing itself through toxicity and, and damaging a lot of things. How did that affect you? Firstly, your relationship with your mum and with Marshall, but also your own faith as you were seeking to, to journey through this and work it all out. Interestingly, as I've read reviews of the book, Where the Light Fell, they often use words like abuse or mental illness. And that never occurred to me <laughs> growing up. You, you just automatically assume your life is like everybody else's. Like This is my normality. That's all I know. And, and you don't really have the ability to compare alternatives. So the way it affected me, frankly, was to try to keep it from affecting me. And so I went through this period People who are in families like that will often do things like self-harming, and I did that. I broke a bone just to prove that I could overcome pain. I would go out in the 
in the cold without a coat just to prove that I could overcome cold, you know, and you look back and these seem like these adolescent kind of things that we do, but it, it did, it, it did make me resilient. They, they can't get me, you know, all I have to do is survive. And then once I'm out on my own, I can live my own life. And I, I guess that's a message that I would give. I know a lot of other fundamentalists, some do turn to addictions, some turn to rejection and anger, and I understand why. Um, but, but what I, what, I guess what I was blessed with, I mean, again, I go back to Dr. Paul Brand, uh, finding people that I wanted to be like, finding people I could learn from in a positive way. And fortunately, I did run into enough of those people um, not having a father, Dr. Brand became a kind of father figure to me. And, and I like that, you know, because uh, most people are stuck with the fathers they're born with. I got to choose my own as an adult. <laughs> we didn't have to go through all that teenage in, individuation stuff. But uh, I think that that hard shell got me through. And then uh, I, I felt graced by God and, and have ever since, frankly. I, I did fill out a survey one time. I think there's a website called Fundamentalist Anonymous. It might have come from them. A survey where you go through and check all these, you know, I feel this way, I feel that way. And at the end, I realized there are a lot of good things I took even out of, out of that toxic environment. Um, discipline. We were very disciplined. We, we learned the Bible which is a very a book full of wisdom, and it's been helpful to me in my career, obviously. And I, it was hammered into me, and and at least I got that. And then the the sense that what we do matters, that life is not something you just skate through, that you should make intentional choices. Now, in addition to that, it was cloaked in this hellfire brimstone. God's going to get you, you know, which is not healthy, and it's a very shame based. I didn't feel much grace, but there, there were some things that I took away from it. And, and then when I saw my brother go his own route, I saw that a lot of things that looked like freedom, hey, I'm free, I can do anything I want to, I can drop out of college, I can use drugs, I can, these were self-destructive things. He made, he made choices that he himself would say now were bad choices and kind of frittered his life away. He really should have been on the concert stage, not going from home to home tuning, this, tuning pianos. Philip, I can really resonate with these two characters in your book. One seemed to be, one, your mother, who seemed to be addicted to fundamentalist religion. Um, and, and, I, and I will use intentionally word, use that word, addiction. And then on the other side, you've got Marshall, who seems to be addicted to, to other things, drugs and sex. And Talk to me about that, about those two extremes, and you growing up, seeing those two extremes, and you trying to choose that middle path. Yeah. That's a very good insight, Troy, um, because both initially promise freedom, but they end up with a kind of slavery. So my brother felt, I'm free. I can do whatever I want. And he did. But gradually, those things controlled him. He didn't control them anymore. And he struggled with that ever since. And the same is true of of toxic religion. I mean, they they promise freedom. But when you get inside, you realize there are 5,000 rules you have to obey and, and you don't feel free at all. And Jesus said, I, I, I came to bring you freedom. freedom. And if, if you were not free, then we're not following Jesus. He said, the truth shall set you free. And the truth that I was taught growing up certainly didn't set me free. It just made me smaller and smaller and smaller. And he said, uh, you know, the very word gospel means good news, but it sure didn't sound like good news to me. There was so much guilt and shame. And how do I negotiate between those two? Well, I, I guess on both ends, I saw what I didn't want to be like. I didn't, I didn't want to follow my brother's path. I saw how self-destructive that was. And I didn't want to, find, I didn't want to follow these um, you know, the extreme fundamentalist path, because I saw so many holes in it. it. Didn't It didn't add up with what I was learning about science. It just didn't correspond to the reality that I had come to know. And it was through finding a few people who showed me what that middle path looks like that uh, 
I, I had some models. Maybe I can be like this person. Maybe I can learn from that person. There's a, an American author you may know. His name is David Brooks. He, he writes for the New York Times. And in one of his recent books called A Second Mountain, he says, he says there are two kind of virtues. One would be resume virtues. And that's why we in the West spend so much time on. Of course, you guys aren't in the West, but Western culture, you know what I mean? That is what school you went to, what kind of car you drive, what kind of job you have, how much money you have. You know, these are things you put on your resume to look good. And we spend so much time going after those things. He said, funny thing is, when a person dies, I've never heard anyone, he says, stand up and say, oh, this guy was so smart. He bought Apple stock at $100 a a share, and now it's worth $1,000. They talk about a different kind of virtues, legacy or eulogy virtues. He was kind. He was good. He was a family person. He cared for his children. He, he went to a homeless shelter once a month, you know, that kind of thing. And, and, and I kind of, that's one thing I took away from my church environment, that the American dream of chasing and accumulating and, and that whole celebrity entertainment culture is pretty shallow. Don't spend my time chasing that or being sucked into it. Uh, go for things that matter. And, and those would be the, the eulogy virtues. And that was a lesson that I took away. And then I gradually met people who showed them in a healthy way, not, a, not an unhealthy way. You know, when, when we look at you in, in comparison to a lot of, of Christian public figures, there this seems to be a bit of a paradox with you i mean yeah really i mean it certainly we've heard that your um your book what's so amazing about grace it was really well received by the gay community and you're very open about your friendships with gay people as an evangelical quite often like there's a lot of opposition to homosexuality and any lifestyle that might not reflect the the very narrow box tell us about how you reconcile with your self-description as an evangelical and your close friendship and relationship with um, with the gay community. Right. Well, that came about uh, unexpectedly. One, I would say one of my five best friends in the world was a man named Mel White, who was part of the evangelical community. He taught at Fuller Seminary, a, a major evangelical seminary, and wrote books with, actually wrote books with Billy Graham and Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell and uh, Corey Aquino of all people. So he was a ghostwriter and he would take on their persona and, and write books. But, it, but I later found out after we had been friend for years that he had this secret life that, that he had hidden and then it kind of burst out into the open and then he became a, a very strong gay activist, always as a Christian. and. I mean, in some ways, he was a prophet without honor when he would meet with the other leaders of the gay community. But I, he was my friend. I, I loved him. He was one of the most enjoyable people to be around of anybody I knew. But he knew how to fake it, so you couldn't you couldn't tell any, anything that was going on. And then one day, he just kind of broke down and told me his whole story, tragic story that involved uh, aversive therapy, you know, electric shocks and all that. He tried in every way to become different. I don't know if he's known in the United States, but probably his book, or excuse me, in Australia, but probably his book, A Stranger at the Gate, is the one that tells his story. And he became a a strong activist. He would lead protest movements on Christian colleges and and chain himself to the fence and focus on the family and do all sorts of things. And he taught me, um, well, first, draw your pattern from Jesus. Jesus hung around all sorts of people who were probably offensive to him in some way. I mean, even clearly they were. The ones that were most offensive tended to be the religious people, the Pharisees. He was offended by the fact that they thought they had a corner on the truth and were trying to make everybody like them. And Jesus was not like that. He got the reputation of of a friend of sinners, someone who, who parties all the time and hangs around harlots and and uh, people with leprosy, you know, disabled people. And and that was Jesus' choice. He went out of his way. He didn't he didn't seem to enjoy being around the religious people. He wanted to be he said I came for 
for the needy. I came for the sick, not for the well. And I'm not, I'm not saying gay people are sick, but I'm just saying Jesus chose people based on uh, loving who they were as they were. And that was a lesson that I learned from, from Mel. And I, I know there are complicated issues. Every religion that I know of throughout history has had some scruples about sexuality of all sorts. It's just a powerful force that religion sees the need to control in some way. You know. But um, I, I try to be a bridge builder I try not to take, somebody asks me, what is your stance on same-sex marriage or ordination? And I say, you know, as soon as I tell you this is my stance, I lose the ability to speak to the other side, whatever the other side is. And I have spoken to people like in the Gay Christian Network, but I don't talk about my beliefs about certain of the issues, the flaming issues, because my message is a message of grace. Jesus didn't talk about that at all. He didn't talk about abortion. And it just seems odd to me that in the United States, at least, the evangelical movement is almost characterized by those two issues, gay rights and abortion. And that seems kind of weird when we're supposed to be followers of Jesus and Jesus didn't mention either one. You know, We should primarily be known for spreading the love of God and there is health. And no matter where you are, you can be transformed. You can be made new. And that, that's the good news of the gospel. And we also don't understand, we spend so much energy trying to clean up society around us. And I, I don't see Jesus or Paul, for that matter, concerned at all about cleaning up the Roman Empire. They just assumed the Roman Empire was going to have a different set of values than they. And their job was to create a, a pioneer community that showed how we should live, how God wants us to live. And that's what happened with the early Christians. And after a couple centuries, people said, I like the way they live better than the way we live. You know, I want to be one of them. And this tiny little sect, just a division of Judaism, as the Romans saw it, took over the Roman Empire because it looked like a better way to live. This idea of legislating morality for everybody around us, I, I don't see anything in the New Testament for, that, that would support that. We should just show the world why we believe our, our life following Jesus is better than alternatives. You know, for my own journey, Philip, when I was reading your books, this is in the late 90s, I was on a journey out of, you know, fundamentalism to a more moderate evangelical position. I think there's a lot of our listeners that are that are in that journey right now. They're in that position themselves. How would you respond to fundamentalists or even, dare I say, evangelicals that would say, you're too liberal, you're too progressive, you're not even a real Christian anymore. How would you respond to that? Well, I do get that. I get those emails. <laughs> and um, I, I, got, I created a firestorm the other day. A, a reader or a writer that I read regularly is, is named Richard Rohr. I don't know if you know that name. R-O-H-R. He's a, he's a Franciscan priest. And some people think he's kind of new agey, uh, but he he's a, just a wonderful man, and he comes up with some great insights, and I quote him regularly on my Facebook site and on my blog. And every time I do, people jump on it and say, uh, you know, how can you be a Christian and quote Richard Rohr? I try not to answer those people, frankly. I would just say, I understand that you think you have it all figured out. And at a certain point, most of us do. I certainly did when I was your, when I was in the mindset that you're showing me now. But that's not the way to convince anybody. The way to convince people is to demonstrate the qualities that Jesus did, openness and love and tolerance. And let's start there, and then we can talk. In, in the United States, it's become so political, you know, so politically divisive. And, and I, I was going to say earlier, the church I grew up in, we were defined by how, by our behavior. It was different than the behavior around us. Now, in the United States at least, it's almost defined by politics, even issues like vaccines or wearing masks. You know, uh, If you're on one side, then you judge the other side. I don't know how these things happen, but here we are. And Christians shouldn't be. Jesus, in his last night with the disciples, said, 
the main thing I want you to do is show unity to the world. The mark of a Christian is love. Man, when I go around and ask people, as I do sometimes, what's the first word that comes to your mind when I say Christian? I've never once heard anybody say love or unity or grace. <laughs> you know, it's, it's usually a, an anti-word. They're anti this, anti that, or they're judgmental, or they're hypocrites, or holier than thou. And some of that's unfair. The media loves it. But uh, I, I just don't hear people in my country. Now, when I travel to Africa, when I travel to the Philippines, and I say, what's a Christian, or even India, usually I get a positive response because missionaries have blazed a trail with orphanages and clinics and hospitals and digging wells and teaching agriculture, you know, we've, we've done a better job. So in, in those developing countries, majority world countries, the gospel, as they understand it, really does first sound like good news. It sounds like something I want. I mean, you've, you've certainly taken the conversation in a direction that we've spoken about before. And if you look at the Trump example, and the Trump phenomenon and what happened with evangelicals and the right during this period and, and obviously has continued into now. We, we saw things, if, if you were a Christian in moderate circles, you would have seen a lot of the Trumpisms as something that was very anti-Christian, yet we saw 81% of evangelicals voted for Trump. There was something that they saw that he displayed what they believed was Jesus-like qualities. How do you think that that's affected this this shift that is happening there at the moment? There's a real shift. I mean, 10 years ago, 75% of Americans identified as Christian. Today, that is 63%. Do you think that that shift, that, that move away from people identifying as Christian is because of that real angry rise that we're seeing come up through the evangelical right? I do. And I think the the temptation of being in the corridors of power is one of the most difficult things that the church deals with. And one, one of the things we've done worst over history. I'll give you a very different example because we're talking in the midst of uh, the war that's taking place in Ukraine. And Vladimir Putin was welcomed by Christians, even evangelicals who would go over there as missionaries. He's trying to clean up society he rebuilds these churches, whereas under communism, they had persecuted and torn down the churches. And then he, he made a pact with the Russian Orthodox Church. And gradually, all the evangelical and conservative foreign missionaries were kicked out. And the Russian Orthodox Church is one of Putin's biggest supporters. I'm sure they're cheering him on in Ukraine. And that's what happens when church and state get in bed together state always wins, church always loses. And we've seen that in the United States. It, it, to me, it started kind of back in the, in the 70s, maybe. Jimmy Carter was elected. He was, it was declared the year of the evangelical because he was outspoken about his faith and the media was kind of interested in that. Tell me what an evangelical is. They'd never met one before. They live in New York. And, uh, and then it kind of got co-opted by people like Jerry Falwell and uh, James Dobson and people in the religious right. And evangelicals were defined by the religious right. By That's a political description. Well, Christians should never be defined by a political description. And another survey that came out about the time Trump was elected was before Trump was elected, 70% of evangelicals felt that the moral character of a candidate was one of the most important measures of whether you should vote for him. After Trump was elected, that dropped to 30%. Because obviously, Donald Trump, regardless of what you feel about his positions, but he's, 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 not, he's not the kind of person you would hold up as an exemplary Christian, the way he treats women, so many of his views, the way he makes his money, you know. Uh, there are a lot of losses going on right now. The way he treats minorities, the appeal to Christian nationalism, sometimes accused of racism. And, and there, there were certainly some in that 81% who kind of held their nose and voted for him because the issues like abortion were very important. There are some issues that are single issue voters. And um, 
But a lot of them, I think, were, don't know what an evangelical is. They tick it off in a box. But what it really means is they live in the South or they live in the Midwest and they're worried about concerns in our culture, things they see on TV and pornography and and uh, this gender stuff, which they don't really understand. And what's this trans stuff all about and the cancel culture? They don't like that. They don't like the way the media goes. And so he, he was a reactionary. He was reacting against that kind of New York, California culture. And and they voted for him almost tribally. But, uh, you know, the world is changing. The world is growing more diverse. And we Christians, those of us who are left after it winnows down, have to figure out how to live in a pluralistic world where somebody expressed it recently as Christians used to be the home team. Now they're the away team. People aren't cheering for them. They're throwing beer bottles at them, you know. <laughs> And, and that doesn't threaten me, it doesn't worry me, because actually uh, Christians do pretty well when they're persecuted, when they are the minority. That's when, that's when God really moves, as I look at history. It's when they're the home team. It's when they're in the corridors of power, as happened in Europe for a thousand years, where we lose the, the sense of, of the gospel as a sign of contradiction, a, a prophetic voice. Martin Luther King was so strong about that. We're the conscience of the state. We're the prophets. We can't be beholden to this party or that party, this position, that position, because we're, we take our orders from God, he would say, not from the head of the party. I mean, you've described that behavior of evangelicals, which is, it's been quite repulsive, to be quite mm -hmm. honest, when you reflect on it. Do you still consider yourself to wear the badge of evangelical when you've seen that behavior? Well, again, that, that word means good news. Uh, it, was, it was initially used by Roman Empire, emperors who were propagating good news and then taken over evangelion. And um, in most of the world, it's still good news. I know that person who's head of the National Association of Evangelicals in the United States. He's of Korean descent, fine man, Walter Kim. And he recently returned from the World Evangelical Congress. And these people from so many countries in Africa and Asia are saying to him, uh, we hear that the word evangelical in the United States is a bad word now. Well, it's not here. So if you don't want to use it, that's fine. But we still like it. <laughs> we still believe it's good news. And people in our country do too. So I do cling to it uh, because I am pretty conservative in my theology, not so much in my politics, but in my theology I am. And I do follow the Bible and I want to be like Jesus. And, and that's what an evangelical should be, I think. The media when you say the word evangelical, all they know is, oh, those are the 80% who voted for Donald Trump. And so they look at it through a political lens and they immediately judge me. Well, <laughs> they don't have the right to do that. But I, at a certain point, it may mean the opposite of, all, of what, I, what I mean by it. And in that case, I'll have to let go of it. But I cling to it as long as I can. Philip, coming back to your book, one of the things that I noticed about it was you didn't get into theology. You didn't, you didn't dig into that at all. How is your relationship now with your mum and with your brother, Marshall? Because they're still in their respective camps. Is that right? Well, they are, but there has been some movement even since I turned in the manuscript. Uh, I turned in the manuscript in May or June of 2021. And at that point, they had not spoken to each other in 51 years. And... Uh, I got them on a three-way phone conversation. Didn't go particularly well. And we've actually had three phone conversations. My brother keeps insisting he's an atheist. And, and um, my mother says, well, I remember when you accepted Jesus as your savior. And my brother comes out with a profanity. And, and she says, what, what did he say? And I said, he said a bad word, mother. That's what I thought he said. <laughs> so that's kind of how the conversation goes. But then remarkably, remarkably, after that, this would have been only maybe six weeks ago. The book has been out for several months. Uh, he sent her a, a three-word card. He's afflicted by a stroke. He has to use his left hand. He used to be right-handed. 
So it's hard for him to write a card, stick it in an envelope, you know, do all that stuff. And it had just three words on it. I forgive you, which I would never have predicted. I mean, he did this all his own. No one was prompting him. And someone had convinced him until you can reach that point, she's going to be hanging like a chain around your neck. And you're the only one who can release that chain. So for your own sake, forgive her. Don't let her dominate your life. He's 74 years old and here she is dominating his life. I was with my mother just a few weeks ago. She's about to turn 98. She's uh, she's a 98-year-old person and was recently put on hospice. She doesn't have anything terminal, but she's failing in ways. So they put her on hospice to have extra help come in and help. She's heard some things about the book. She can't read. She's got macular degeneration. It, it softened her. She actually said, maybe I messed up some things, which is a huge admission for her. And my brother feels very validated by the book. It, it portrays him. It shows him, I hope, in a sympathetic light, why he, he made some bad choices, but it shows why he did. You know, he had some good reasons to make bad choices. So here for years, I've been afraid to write this book and certainly afraid to publish it because I, I wondered how it would affect my family. But so far, it's been a positive effect on, on both ends. So there's still hope. Do you think that's a bit of a, a flag for honesty, honest conversations at any cost are worth it? <laughs> at any cost? I don't know if I go that far, but uh, yes, I scars, wounds only heal when they're exposed to the light. You know, if you if you keep something covered with a Band-Aid real tight, it'll, it may never heal. You, you've got to eventually let it expose it to the atmosphere. And um, maybe maybe our psychological wounds are the same way. And often you need a professional's help in dealing with those wounds. I think of some of the people who listen to your podcast, if not a professional help, at least a support group, you know, something like that that can help you process and, and give you support as you as you dig stuff up because it can be it can be scary. I, I did find the process of writing, in my case, therapeutic, though. My wife would be worried about me. I, I'd go out there and writing about my brother attempting suicide. And I'd come back and because I go out in, into the mountains in a little cabin to write. When I come back, she'd say, are you OK? Are you OK? I said, yeah, I feel great um, because I, I dealt with it and and uh, it fits into a pattern. I understand now. And I think that's what that's what memoirs do. One of the things I like best, I've gotten hundreds of people who've written me and almost every one of them tells me their story. Memoirs evoke, they, they strike a chord of resonance in us as readers. And they're as much about the reader as the writer. I mean, you learn more about me than you need to know, but in the process, I, I'm bringing to the surface your own story. It's different than mine in some ways. In some ways, they overlap. And so I found the writing of the memoir um, a very healthy therapeutic act. It's interesting because when I was looking at the book and down in the bottom corner, it said, you know, I think it said, Hodder, Stoughton, Religion. And I was thinking, this book isn't really a religious book. <laughs> you know, it, it's a memoir. And, and I think whether this was intentional or not, it's been very clever the way that I think an evangelical and even a Trump supporting evangelical can read this book and not be not be offended. And then even, you know, the Marshall type, the the ex-evangelical can read this book and not be offended because you're just telling a story. And and I think yeah. there's a lot of you, you certainly bring your perspectives in your own personal judgments, but I think you allow the reader to engage that. And I guess I want to really stress that as we, you know, speak to our, our audience through this podcast is that, that this book isn't going to trigger you, not in the way you might think that it's, you know, coming from a, a pushing an evangelical barrow or pushing a, a, a Christian barrow. It's really telling a story. And I think in a lot of ways for a lot of us, whether we were raised in it or whether we joined later on, it's about fundamentalism and it's about the damaging effects of fundamentalism. So I really want to thank you for it because I I did think it was great, and I was reading it ready to be triggered. <laughs> it truly was, and yet, nevertheless, um, it wasn't. And and also, it reminded me of what you did for me 
in the 90s as an author in helping me journey from you know from damaging Christianity to to a, a less extreme version. And then, you know, I mean, you probably don't like to hear this, that eventually I stepped out completely. But nevertheless, your your place in that journey was really important and really key. And I'm not for a minute saying you led me out of Christianity, not at all, but you led me to a point where I could question. And that wasn't something that I had, you know, exposure to as a fundamentalist. So thank you for that, mm. Philip. Boy, that means a lot. It really does, Troy. Um, I uh, all of my books to this point have been idea-driven books, and when I when I started to write this, I decided I just got to tell a story. And so many Christian books wrap up at the at the end. Everybody lives happily ever after, and that's not my story. Uh, so I wanted to be faithful to that, and. Um, I learned a lot in the in the process of writing. I had to keep going through and taking out commentary. You know, I'm, I'm so used to to adding that, and I had to take it out, take it out, take it out, and try to just tell the story. That's what I wanted to do. For some people, it's going to seem like a very weird story. For some people, it's going to it's going to be wistful and nostalgic because I'm I'm sure you both could tell me experiences like at a youth group or summer camp or something, you look back wistfully on some of those things that come to the surface. We all have that. Any of us raised in a religious background, we have that in our past. And yet some people can't, can't ever look back on it with neutrality. It's, it's so poisoned by the, the other things that came with it. And, and we're all going to go through that sifting process of, I'm going to keep this. I'm going to, I'm going to discard that. My, advantage, I guess I'd say, is, is that's just my full-time job. <laughs> you know, uh, most people go to work and then they think about things in the evening or on Sunday if they're Christians. But I think about them all day long. So um, if I can help somebody find their own path of reconstructing, then that's what I wanted to do. Thank you for that, Troy. Look, Philip, it's, it's been enormously um, impactful to us both reading the book. It is something that we both identified with, we really appreciated, and we really, we want to say to our listeners, read it, go out and get it. Like it, it really is a great book. And, to, you know, regardless of where people are at, whether they are reconstructing, deconstructing, whether they're still in the fold or they're out of the fold, I think there's some great stuff in there. And and one thing that we always try to do through our podcast is look back on our experiences and identify those bits which are really valuable. You know, you talked about the fact that you were able to bring discipline forward and that was something that you took out of a, a, a less than ideal environment and examples of, of, uh, of your church experience, your Christian experience. We're the same. Like We try and find those good bits and there's plenty of them to bring forward and and we've certainly been able to employ a lot of those things that we learned i've even brian i've even got a philip yancey tattoo in chinese yeah. on my yeah. arm. And, and i think post this uh, interview i'm not going to get it removed so all good <laughs> absolutely not and and look i i think that that is one thing that resonated with us is that through all the crap that has happened to you, that you've been able to hold fast to something. Some of our listeners, many of them might not disagree with the, what you've held on to, but you've been able to process it. You've been able to deconstruct and you've been able to reconstruct in a way that is, um, for you, it's it's healthy and it's, it's a great way forward. And that's what we want for people. We want people to be able to reconstruct in a way that is helpful, that is healthy, and that they're not staying in that unhealthy space that really does 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 nothing to yourself but damage yourself and others around you. Yeah, and that's why, you know, we have atheists, agnostics, Christians, and for us it's not about the destination, it's it's more about a trajectory. So that's why we're really happy to have you on, as well as to, to fanboy you a little bit and say, wow, you know, we had your books and, and you know, we, we, we loved the impact that you had on us at one point. And so, you know, there, there are things that we can draw from that time which were positive and and genuinely not just saying that because you're a guest on our show genuinely you had a really positive impact on us so thank you for all that you've done well you're very kind and the fact that your podcast is so well received and successful is an indication that a lot of people need that 
and you're part of the part of the helping hand that you're holding out to to guide other people through the same experience or not the same experience but the same trajectory so keep keep doing your good work and i'm glad to meet a couple of other bridge builders the problem is of course you get stepped on from both sides but <laughs> that's okay we can handle that we've, okay. we've been right. through a lot <laughs> but um okay. yeah no definitely more than happy to to continue doing this and as long as people want to listen yeah so thank you for being on our show philip we really appreciate you being here um next week brian it's going to be another episode another guest another story look forward to it mate see you next week i'll see you then and thank you again philip all right it was a pleasure guys Great to meet you both.